Hey, good morning, East Point. Whether you're here in person or watching online, we are thrilled that you are here. And I'm very excited today uh, because we've been preaching through the seven churches in Revelation and those love letters from Jesus. And last week we asked that question, what is Jesus saying to us? And we talked about how we're in this only God moment as a church and how we're looking forward to seeing how as we depend upon only God for his provision and become an only God kind of people, how God can do immeasurably more through us as a result of all that. And so uh, on Friday and Saturday, we had Dr. Gary Johnson from a group called E2 Elders. I mentioned them in the uh, message last week and that they're a group we're going to be partnering with. Uh, and, and Dr. Johnson just guided us through um, re-examining our, our vision, our mission, our values, and what that means for us in a practical expression. And I am ex so excited to be sharing that with you here shortly, but I've got to work through it a little bit more, so it's going to be in January when we really start hitting that full force. We're so excited to bring that to you. But Dr. Johnson, he said, uh, this church has so much to offer, he's going to stick around and preach for us this morning too. And uh, fortunately, he went ahead and had some extra caffeine this morning, so he is ready to go for service too. Um, Dr. Johnson, um, actually, um, he's been on East Point's radar for about 10 years to bring him in and to help guide us through some necessary transitions. He's been on my radar longer than that because he was pastor at a church called The Creek over in Indianapolis that we always looked up to. Uh, but then he also was one of our professors in seminary. And so I don't think he remembers me uh, too much from uh, the paper that I wrote that I think I got, you know, an average grade on or something like that. You got an A. You, you got, got an A. a. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something like that. So uh, an A at least. So, uh, But uh, he's going to come speak to us this morning. And uh, you're, he's going to be doing a lot more things behind the scenes with it at East Point to help get us as healthy as we possibly can be so that we can reach as far and as deep into our community as we possibly can. So please welcome Dr. Johnson as he comes to speak this morning. Thank you, Dustin. And uh, do we appreciate our pastor? Yes, indeed. Absolutely. It's a privilege being with you here on site, and welcome to everybody uh, joining us online, how grateful we are. And I'm privileged to talk about these love letters. Uh, and uh, I want to share with all of us today a love story from the Old Testament. It's going to dovetail perfectly into the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. You know, in New Zealand, there are not that many Christians and a story comes out of New Zealand about a young couple that fell in love, got married, both of them believers, followers of Jesus. The young lady wanted the pastor to use 1 John 4, verse 18, as the theme for her wedding. And that verse says, perfect love casts out all what? Anybody? All fear, that's right. Perfect love casts out all fear. It was on her invitation. It was printed on the napkins at the reception. The preacher used it in the wedding ceremony. She even ordered it to be on the side of her cake. First John 4, 18. The wedding was beautiful. She got to the reception, uh, and as she and her new husband walked in, she was thrilled because so many people were taking pictures of her cake. Oh, they love my cake, she thought. And uh, it came time to cut the cake. She and her new husband went up to cut the cake, and she noticed something was not quite right. The baker was not a believer, did not know the significance of that Roman numeral one in front of John. 
didn't put that there, that little detail, and just had John 4.18. Now, if you remember in John, the gospel, chapter 4, that's where Jesus meets the woman at the well. And in verse 18, it reads, the fact is you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So there's a whole lot missed there when we miss that little detail. You and I are going to go into a love story in the Old Testament, and we are not going to miss a single detail because it speaks powerfully into your life and in mine today on the road of life. Now, here's a little bit of context before we get into the content. It's very important that we always do that. Check out the context before we get into the content. The context of the love story where we are is David the king in a turning point in life. A significant moment is now uh, coming into David's life, and God's going to do the unstoppable for David. Now, fast forward into your life and in mine. We have turning points, every single one of us in this room, and you'll understand what I mean by that in just a moment. And not only do we have turning points as individuals, but as a church family. I've been a preacher for 40 years, 30 at the Creek, and I'm here to tell you I can speak authoritatively that there are turning points in a congregation's journey, life. You, dear friends, are in a turning point at East Point. You're in a turning point, and we're going to see the unstoppable God make all the difference. Here we go, Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, whether you turn in a book uh, that's got pages or on your phone, a tablet, please join us in the Word of God. We're going to start in verse 1, and it reads that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the kings of Israel had come to uh, King David at Hebron, the king made a compact with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. This is huge. Now, notice this. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, over Judah, over Judah. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Why is this a turning point for David? Because now, after seven years, he is finally king over all 12 tribes, over a united Israel. That's why this is a turning point. And if you and I would just peek around the corner of that paragraph, we could, in a single word, assume that David was incredibly excited about this turning point in life. Incredibly so. Why? Because now all of the army is under his beck and call. Every soldier, every piece of equipment, every company, every uh, regiment under David's command. All of the resources of Israel, all of the crops, everything about Israel under his authority, his leadership. And now he can move the kingdom of Israel forward for the glory of God. David would have been incredibly excited in that turning point. But very quickly, his excitement exploded. His dream became a nightmare, and you'll see why. Verse 17, check it out. 
when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel. In other words, news travels what? Fast, exactly. News travels fast. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. Stop right there. Full force in Hebrew means every soldier was deployed. Every chariot, every horse, every bow and arrow, every lance, every spear, every regiment, every division, nobody was allowed to stay back in Philistia. The entire military army in full force went to fight this king over now a united nation that posed a great threat to them. And what did David do? He went down into the stronghold. Now, don't think for a moment that that was a storm shelter. David went into, if you would, a war room like that of the Pentagon, and he's got his leading uh, officers with him, and they're coming up uh, to uh, develop their battle strategy. He went down into the stronghold. It doesn't mean he was hiding. It meant that he was formulating his plan. Now, watch this. The Philistines, they had come and they spread out in the valley of Rephaim. That's to the south and west of Jerusalem. So David, he inquired of the Lord. What's that mean? David prayed. He's leading his men in prayer before God. Like the default mechanism on a computer, a default setting, David's default was to always turn to God in prayer, always. He inquired of the Lord. Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And the Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. So David went. See, he didn't uh, delay. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't put God on vo uh, to his voicemail. He didn't put him on hold. He immediately obeys God. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there. David and his men carried them off. Phew! Boy, what a turning point. But it doesn't end there. You and I could say that David, in this turning point, quickly could have became exhausted. And here's why, exhausted, spent, depleted. Verse 22, once more the Philistines came up, and they spread out in the valley of Rephaim. The Philistines went home, they caught their breath, and they're back again. David, he barely had time for a nap. He had barely had time to uh, redeploy the army, get them resupplied. Here come the Philistines again. So David inquired of the Lord. He's going to pray again. There's his automatic default. And he answered, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly, because that will mean that the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did. <laughs> there it is again, immediate obedience. We should be seeing some patterns here. Immediate obedience. David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer. Now, let's just push pause on this Netflix love story here, all right? Push pause, because we, we, we have to stop and think for a moment. You know, years ago, 
there was a commercial for whisk laundry detergent. Maybe, ladies, some of you use that. Guys, maybe you use that as well. And I remember the commercial. It showed this homemaker. She had long hair. She was a brunette, and she had sudsy hands because she was washing her husband's shirts. She was pushing her hair back out of her eyes, and, and the commercial said, oh, she's tried soaking them out. She's tried scrubbing them out, but still she gets what? Anybody? What does she get? That's right, ring around the collar. Oh, those filthy rings. She's tried soaking them out. She's tried scrubbing them out, but still she gets ring around the collar. Now, that commercial inferred that that homemaker did not know how to do the laundry. That's what it inferred. What the commercial needed to ask was the obvious question, when is that guy going to wash his neck? That's the question it should have asked. Now, there is an obvious question right here that we need to ask. And the, ask, uh, the question is, what on earth does this have to do with me? What on earth does this turning point in David's life have to do with me on the road of life? And the answer is everything. Because guess what? Friend, friends, all of us at some point in time are going to be in a turning point, individually, but also as a church family, we will be in a turning point. Like David, some of our turning points are exciting. Hey, we just graduated from college. We just got our first job. We just got married. We're having our first child. Uh, we have exciting turning points. Uh, just retired, moved into retirement. I'm going to really enjoy this season of life. There are many exciting turning points in life. But also, like David, there are moments when our dream turns into a nightmare, and that turning point goes south, so to speak. We're just flying along on the road of life, and all of a sudden we don't feel well. We go to the doctor, some tests are run. We get the phone call, hey, get in here. You have cancer, and it's stage four. I remember this incredible lady at the creek. Uh, she was a huge part of our church family. She worked hard, and she entered into retirement and she was not retired six months, and she stopped me at the door of the church, and she said, hey, come and see me, pray over me. I, I was just diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, and I have six months to live. Her turning point, her excitement quickly came to a point uh, of an explosion of the hope, the excitement that she had. All of it it, it happens to us, whether it is with regard to our physical health, with regard to our financial health. Hey, we go to work on Monday morning. Hey, pack up. You're done. No more job. A sudden job loss. We suddenly discover that we're being served papers. Our spouse has filed for divorce. A turning point can quickly become a nightmare. Or maybe, like David, a turning point could be exhausting. Exhausting. That for whatever reason, we find life difficult. Hey, all of these cancer treatments, the, the chemotherapy, the radiation, the surgeries, I'm done. I'm exhausted. Or I've tried everything. I've gone to counseling time and again to save our marriage, but you are determined to walk out on us. We're exhausted. We hear news. Guess what? Another wave of COVID is coming. We are exhausted. We're weary of it. We turn on the news. Another fight between people in our uh, country, between ideologies. When will it end? You see, we're in a turning point, 
and it happens to a congregation on the road of life. And a turning point can be exciting. That excitement can explode overnight. And a church family can become exhausted. You see how that text fits all of us today? And it's a love story. It's God's love letter to us because He is going to show off. We don't want to miss this detail. Here are three details that you and I do not want to miss in this love story. Here are three ways that God made all the difference. Only God, only God in David's story. And the same is true for you and me. Are you ready? Here we go. Verse 19, check it out. It says here, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? The Lord answered him, go, for I will surely hand the Philistines over to you. Incredible. What what does that speak of? Number one, God's presence. God was fully present in David's turning point when it went south. And guess what? God, who does not change like shifting shadows, as it says in the book of James, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. God still is present with us. Zephaniah 317, the Lord your God is with you, and he is mighty to save. He's with you. He's not distant. He's with you. We read in Hebrews 13, verse 5, and God said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God promised to be with us. The Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's tall orders. But guess what? The Great Commission comes with the promise of a great companion, and surely I will be with you, what? Always, to the end of the age. Incredible. You see, you and I have got to understand something. Please promise me you will never say again, God showed up. That's not quite accurate theology because according to the good book, God is always here. He's always here. It's when God shows off, and we're going to see that with number two here in the text. Emmanuel, God what? With us. His name means he's with us. Don't ever forget that. So whatever your turning point is right now, individually or as a church family, (laughs) only God is the ultimate difference maker. He's here, and he will always be here, always. You know, um, Leah and I, we've been married 42 years, and like you, we've had to work on our marriage during COVID. I I don't know what your game plan is, but Leah and I, we decided we were going to go out for supper uh, one uh, every week, at least once every week. You know, a little bit of music, a little bit of candlelight. Leah goes on Tuesday, I go on Thursday. We're keeping our marriage together. We're working it out. You know, we we have two boys, both in the ministry, both married. We have uh, six grandkids. And uh, when the first grandchild was on his way, uh, life changed. Prior to any grandchildren, we looked at you grandparents, and we said, what strange people grandparents are. But then we became grandparents, and we are all normal. I want us to understand that, all of us. So I started collecting these grandparent stories, and this one grandpa told me, uh, he went over to see his uh, little grandson. He was about a year and a half old, 18 months old, and he walked into his daughter's house, his uh, and son-in-law, 
And that little guy was in the playpen screaming, crying, and, and as soon as granddad walked in, his little hands went up to grandpa, and he was reaching for grandpa, and just then his daughter came into the room, and she said, stop, dad, don't you dare pick him up. He's staying in that playpen because he's been a bad boy. I'm going up to vacuum the bedrooms. When I come down here, Dad, he better be in that playpen or you are in big trouble. And he said, yes, ma'am. I know who's in charge in this house. So she went up, vacuum came downstairs. That little guy was still in the playpen, but so was Grandpa. Grandpa got into the playpen uh, with that child. Guess what? God is with us. We read in, in 1 John, God has no skin. Jesus, he put on skin and moved into our neighborhood. John chapter 1, he put on flesh and became one of us. The Holy Spirit, when you and I gave our lives to Christ and we were immersed, the Holy Spirit became God in our skin. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter where you go, where I go, whatever we're facing, God is with us. His presence will make all the difference. Only God can do that, my friend. Now, here's our second observation we do not want to miss. You think about your turning point right now. David... He prays, shall I go? Oh, yeah, you go. And now watch what happens in verse 20. So David went to Baal Perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. What David does there, he's using an illustration. He's naming that battlefield Baal Perazim, and that in Hebrew means as waters break out. He's using the metaphor, the illustration of a flood. A wall of water broke out, and that's speaking of, here it is, number two, God's power. God's power was unleashed during David's uh, turning point. Now, just stop and think with me about a wall of water. Our younger son, Aaron, is a police officer in New Orleans. He's been there ever since Katrina. Uh, he went there as a pastor to plant a church on the edge of the Lower Ninth Ward. While there, he was recruited to become a police officer. He did, and now he's the first uh, chaplain of that force. And when Katrina happened, a barge broke free in the canal and it was like a missile. It went through the wall of a giant concrete barrier, and that wall was blown away, and a wall of water went into the lower ninth ward of New Orleans and washed hundreds of houses off from their foundation. Been there many times. All you see is poured concrete, and as those hundreds of houses were washed away, over 1,000 people were swept into eternity. Over a 1,000 bodies were found there in the Lower Ninth Ward, one of the greatest losses of life in a hurricane. And it was flood water, the power, the power of water. And that's what David is calling attention to here. You know what? God has power. Stop and think with me. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. Isaiah tries to describe in human speech what is beyond our understanding. Isaiah 40, verse 12. It says, God waters, measures the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. In the palm of his hand, God measures the water on planet earth. Scientists say that at any moment on the face of the earth, there are 340 quintillion gallons of water, 340, followed by 18 zeros. That's more than the national debt. 
and God, what does he do? He measures it right here in the hollow of his hand. You talk about the power of God. Jeremiah 32, 27. Write it down. It's one of the passwords on one of my many devices. Jeremiah 32, 27. I never want to forget what God says in that text. He says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is there anything too hard for me? God asks us, is there anything too hard for me to help my bride at East Point in the midst of her turning point? Is that too hard for me? Is it too hard for me to help any child of mine in the midst of his or her turning point? And the answer is unequivocally no. God's power. You know that the Amazon River, the largest river on planet Earth, the mouth of the Amazon is more than 100 miles across. It's, it's about 100 miles across. You cannot see to the other side of the Amazon. Think what's 100 miles away, okay? The Amazon, the current, is felt more than 200 miles out into the Atlantic. I'm going to be getting in my car, driving back to Indianapolis. It's 185 miles to my house from here. The Amazon current, fresh water, is even greater still out into the Atlantic, Centuries ago, when people just sailed, when seafarers were floating for days because the wind stopped blowing and they were dying of thirst, if they would see a fisherman, they would yell, hey, got any water? And they would yell back, put down your bucket, you're in the mouth of the mighty Amazon. And they didn't even realize it. Life-giving water was there. We do not realize often enough that the power of the living God is available to us no matter what turning point in which we find ourselves. God is forever the same, and nothing will change that. In Joshua chapter 10, Joshua is against five enemy kings, five against one. And he prays, God, make the sun and the moon stop. And God did. God put the brakes on planet Earth. Imagine the brake pads on planet Earth to stop the Earth from spinning at 1,000 miles per hour relative speed. Nothing is too hard for our God. Our God is unstoppable. Now, here's our third and final discovery in the text. Ready? Not only was God's presence in the midst of David's turning point, not only was his power unleashed, I love this little detail that I never want to miss. Notice it says in verse 23, David inquired of the Lord. Here came the Philistines a second time. And the Lord said, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. You've got to be kidding. Listen for the sound of marching in the tops of the trees, the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the top of those balsam trees, move quickly because that will mean that the Lord has gone out before you to strike the Philistine army. Now, think with me for a moment. David was a trained military genius. He had many military victories, uh, trophies on his wall, and God is telling him, listen for the sound of marching in the top of trees. It, David could have gone, you got to be kidding. What? you got to be kidding. No, David, this is my pattern. This is God's pattern. Would you write on your heart this phrase, please? God does the greatest of things in the least likely of ways. If you and I will look long enough and hard enough, we will see God doing the greatest of things in the least likely of ways. How likely is it for you to find a new lead minister in the midst of a pandemic? Hmm. 
from so far away. I think only God can do something like that. He does the greatest of things in the least likely of ways. When you and I just stop to think, that's his calling card. If something is repeated, it is important in the Scripture. When I look in the Old Testament, God says to a guy named Moses, hey, take that staff, put it out over the water, and the Red Sea divides, the ground is dry, so that three and a half million people can go through that Red Sea to their uh, rescue on the other side. God, he says to a boy by the name of David, David, a shepherd boy, hey, pick up that stone, go against that giant. God brings down a giant of a man with a shepherd boy's slingshot. God does the greatest of things in the least likely of ways. We go to the New Testament, and what happens? We see Jesus feeding not only 5,000 men, but women and children, a crowd of 10, 12,000 or more. And what does he do? He asks this little boy here, hey, do you mind if I borrow your happy meal for a moment, please? Can I have your happy meal there? And he takes these five loaves of bread and two fish, and he feeds a multitude. God does the greatest of things in the least likely of ways. And he not only has been doing that for centuries, he will continue to do that until he does the greatest of things in the least likely of ways and Jesus splits the clouds and he comes back again and every eye will behold him. You talk about an unstoppable God that we have. And so my friends, from this story, this love story, this is a collection of love stories. God wants you and I to know that we are loved by him and he is with us in every turning point of life to unleash his indescribable power, and he's going to do it in the least likely of ways. We just have to have eyes with which to see it. Remember those magicians of Pharaoh? Back in Exodus, they could imitate every one of those miracles of Moses and Aaron ah, up to a point. When the plague of gnats happened, Exodus 8, they couldn't, couldn't do that. And those magicians turned to their supervisor in verse 19 and said, Hey, Pharaoh, uh, this one's different. And they said this, Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Pagan unbelievers recognize the hand of God. And if unbelievers can recognize the hand of God, we should recognize the hand of God at work in our turning point. And God's people say... Amen to that. You know, uh, a young little girl, Hattie Wyatt, she lived in the late 1800s. Hattie went to this little church called the Temple Church in Philadelphia, and she was turned away, literally. That was back in the day when Sunday school was huge, and she went to the little Temple Church to go to Sunday school that day. Every chair was filled. There was no room for Hattie. She went home. I'm going to fast forward the story. Hattie became ill, and Hattie regretfully died. Her mom found her little girl's purse, and in that purse, there were 57 pennies and a note. Hattie had written a note, and the note said, these pennies are for the little temple church so that more chairs and more room can be made for little girls like me. And mom, once she composed herself, she went up to that church and she talked to the pastor. She gave the pastor the purse, the pennies, and the note. And the pastor was broken hearted over what had happened. 
And he stood up the next Sunday and he read that note, told the story to the congregation, and their hearts were broken. And very quickly, pennies and nickels and dimes and quarters and dollars started flowing into the little temple church, and not only from Philadelphia, but from far beyond. And if we fast forward to the end of the story, that little temple church there today is not so little. It seats 4,000 people, the little temple church. And the little temple church, back in the day, they started a college right there in their building. And that little temple college is now Temple University that has graduated tens of thousands of people. And Temple University, being inspired by the temple church that started in their building, their church building, taking care of sick people. And that little hospital in Temple Church in Philadelphia taking care of sick people became Temple University Medical Center, one of the largest leading medical centers on the East Coast. God does the greatest of things in the least likely of ways. Look what 57 pennies did in the name of Jesus. God wants to do the same in your life and in mine. So I'm just going to ask you to stand, and we're going to be worshiping our unstoppable God. We are unstoppable because of our unstoppable God. Praise His name alone.